Have you ever wondered how your sales performance compares against your competitors and peers? The B2B Sales Benchmark Report provides the definitive guide to what success looks like in 2021. See how you compare in terms of win rate, sales cycle, average deal value, relationships, and engagement. You can see the results and get the full report at ebster.com forward slash B2B dash sales dash benchmarks. And then I use that data to say, okay, this is what we've booked in a period. And then for the remaining time period and whatever fiscal period we're in, I take the velocity metrics and the deals we have in the number of opportunities in pipeline. And I start to extrapolate, okay, this is where I think revenue is going to land when I roll all of that together. This is Sales Ops Demystified, the number one most downloaded podcast in sales operations. We invite the brightest minds in sales ops onto the show to deconstruct the what, why, and how behind rep productivity, forecasting, metrics, and all things revenue. This podcast is brought to you by EBSA, a revenue intelligence platform used to identify risk in the pipeline and score customer engagement and is sponsored by the Global Sales Operations Association and the UK Revenue Operations Network. Hello and welcome to another very special episode of the Sales Ops Demystified podcast. Today, we're joined by Michaela Downs, who is currently heading up the sales operation at Benchlink, Benchling, sorry, over on the west coast of the US. And I'm super excited about this discussion today. Michaela's been in the sales ops game for approximately seven years. So there's going to be a wealth of experience to share here. Michaela, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And so I want to, to kick off first because from my understanding of your, your, your back history, you were once in sales and then you made that transition into sales ops. I'd like to understand why, why that happened. Yeah, it's a good question. So about seven years ago, I was at a company called Polybor, which was a, it was a social commerce platform that was eventually acquired by Yahoo. And I started there as an account manager, and that's what I had done in previous roles. And about 18 months in, I just started getting, you know, that, that classic itch, right, of wondering, is this really what I want to be doing, you know, for the next, you know, not even the, you know, the rest of my career, but the next few years. So, um, but I loved the company. I didn't want to leave Polybor, but I couldn't really find like a natural role that I would move into. So I started picking up side projects, so things like, um, you know, assessing our customers to see to better understand our account profiles, improving our customer-facing campaign review decks. Uh, we had Salesforce, but we didn't use it particularly well. So working on a project to improve that, and I was working on those things, not really, not realizing that they were operations. And mm. at about that same time, we hired our first CRO at Polybor. And one of his first assessments was, well, we need a dedicated operations function. This can't be someone's 
spare time job. And he wrote up a job description for a director of revenue operations that he wanted to hire. And I remember, I distinctly remember reading that job description and it was a light bulb moment for me. I was like, wait a second, you mean all these things I've been doing for fun could just be my job? <laughs> um, not realizing that that was a formal role. So I, I wasn't qualified to be director of revenue operations at the time. So he did hire someone else. And I, I may have given her 24 hours after she started before I raised my hand and was like, mm. I'm really interested in moving over to your team. Um, and Polybor is very supportive about making that happen. So that was how I made the leap. Amazing. I love how you described self of tasks as the things you're doing for fun. Um, how much <laughs> did you have to do them outside of your normal role of the account manager? So like in, in mornings or evenings or whenever you had spare time during the day? What, yeah, I think whenever I found spare time, you know, I think one of the things that was making me itchy in the account management role was that it was starting to feel repetitive, right? So I felt like, you know, campaigns went a certain way. I'm sure sometimes um, customers had fire drills, but for the most part, I could figure out a system to make that efficient. So, you know, I found pockets of time or, you know, felt motivated on a Saturday, I could start working on things. Yeah, wake up on a Saturday morning, do some forecasting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, amazing. So th- that makes total sense. It's kind of a, a similar pattern we see on the podcast is that isn't a field that somebody, they don't go to college and and be like, I want to be sales ops. But when they get into, typically into the sales organization as a rep, they start to see that actually, I prefer this more like improvement-based kind of ops analytical work. So it makes total sense. Um, Let's just zoom in today if possible. And so looking at Benchling, how many, roughly how many reps do you have and roughly how many people in the, the, the ops team? So we have 25 account executives who are in the field, um, you know, offers signed, one or two of them haven't started yet. And then in, we also have a related uh, solutions consulting team that works in the field with them. And they all, um, we all work together in the sales org. We also have an SDR function that sits in marketing, and then we have a separate CX or CS team. So... 25 account executives. In my group, there are um, four people who report to me today, but we cover four different functions. So the buckets that I put them in are, we have somebody doing tools and productivity, which is classic Salesforce administration, uh, managing the rest of the tools in our stack, managing reporting and requests, that kind of thing. We also have sales enablement. So uh, she is managing, you know, developing our onboarding plans for sales. What does that continued learning and development look like, whether it's our own product that's um, changing and improving or even just sales skills, right? She's working on those things. We also have the other two people are working on deal desk. We had a new deal desk leader start this month. Um, and traditionally, at Benchling, that's been, you know, the order management piece, implementing uh, an order generation tool, working with finance to make sure that we're recognizing revenue or executing revenue in a compliant way. But the vision of that is to build it into a more strategic function that is also supporting sales on their pricing, deal packaging, negotiation. And then the last bucket within ops where I don't have dedicated headcount yet beyond myself would be, you know, the classic forecasting, planning, compensation management. 
makes total sense. Sounds like a, a very well-structured team. Um, this may be a better question for the uh, the tools and, and, and reporting person, but uh, could you just give us a, a rough overview of, of the tech stack just so the audience have some context? Sure. So we are a Salesforce shop. We use that as our CRM. On the prospecting side, we are using LinkedIn Sales Navigator. We have Clearbit Data Enrichment hooked up to Salesforce. And then our SDRs and what we call our emerging account executives who work on the smaller end of our market, they do not have direct SDR alignment. So they all have licenses to Zoom info for prospecting. And then we're using a tool called MixMax on the sales team for uh, email productivity, meeting scheduling, uh, and that all sits within Gmail and connects to Salesforce as well. And then downstream, we actually use a tool called RFPIO. So in the life sciences space, you know, it's not uncommon for us to go through very rigorous uh, security questionnaires or RFP processes where you, you get these documents that are maybe 400, 500 questions long. So RFPIO is the tool that facilitates the management of that but also helps us build the answer bank so that we're not recreating the wheel every time we get one of those documents. We also implemented Highspot this summer as our collateral or content management system in the field. And lastly, we have a tool called Pandadoc, which is connected to Salesforce and is generating our order forms, MSAs, or NDAs. Awesome. Sounds comprehensive. Now, moving, moving kind of up to today, I assume you guys have, have gone more remote over the past few months, and I'd like to understand uh, how the, your role is growing or how the sales ops function is changing as more of the sales team are going remote. So what's interesting about Benchling is that our sales team was actually remote to begin with. This is actually the first team when I started in April of 2019. I'd never worked with a fully remote sales team before. So we have account executives that live all over the country. We also hired our first sales reps in um, Switzerland, Germany, France, and the UK this summer. So we have always been spread out. And I actually think that's why the tech stack has been more top of mind for me at Benchling than perhaps other roles because we needed mm. to rely on systems since we didn't have that, you know, we didn't sit in the pod uh, to talk to each other every day. So that piece of it, we were actually pretty well situated once everyone did start going remote. Where things did change was the rest of Benchling's team, including sales operations, we were going into the office. So I'd say there were more changes on the internal front. So needing to have formal daily standups where before, you know, I sat next to everyone in my group so we could just talk to each other. So now we have like the Zoom where we could all log in um, and talk to each other and just brainstorm as we need to. And we also needed to move over. We were using like um, Wonderlist checklists just to manage like internal projects and tasks we needed to complete. Once we were remote, there it was obvious that we needed to move to something more robust. So we're actually using um, Airtable as our yeah. you know, internal sales ops project management tool. Nice. So essentially, the, the sales reps were fine. It was more the ops team that needed to work on their internal uh, operation. Yes. No, and I think if anything, it's probably given the rest of the company more empathy for what the salespeople were feeling before, right? Because they were always um, outside of the office. Yeah, that's super interesting. So, yeah, that's this is actually unique. I think out of all the interviews I've done, where the salespeople are like more equipped and 
kind of smoothly have adapted with the, the last six months. So he's a super interesting use case. Um, so those changes you, you guys have made internally within the ops team, do you think the, the way you're working now within the, the five or so of you will persist going forward um, regardless of whether you move back into the office together? I do. I, I think they will be permanent. You know, we're also thinking about, as I mentioned, we, we hired sales reps in Europe, right? And I think there's, that's going to mean there's going to be extensions of sales ops eventually that need to be in Europe as well. So even just given the time zone differences and the locations, I think this, this method of being able to work remotely um, through systems or through Zoom calls is, is going to persist for sure. Got it. Makes sense. Now, have the, um, the targets or the forecast been impacted over the past six months? Yeah, so we have not changed any targets or goals for our sales team. Um, but it is something that we look at all the time. You know, we're, we happen to be having a very good year. So we haven't seen any evidence in the numbers to say, oh, we need to scale back. If anything, I think we have the opposite conversation of, you know, do we actually, do we double down and, you know, increase where we think we're going to land? So we haven't changed anything there. I think the one piece that we are thinking about, and I don't know that we have a great answer for it yet, is, you know, we used to, before COVID, quite a bit of our, you know, our pipeline generation, we would have customer summits or we would have dinner events. Um, the industry itself also, you know, always had a lot of in-person events that obviously aren't happening anymore. So I, I think we're trying to get creative to think about how do we supplant um, what used to happen in person where we, we either had great lead generation coming out of it or frankly, just good morale boosts coming out of it too. You know, we're thinking about, is it do we need to have more webinars for our customers? We need to do more case studies just to create, you know, more of those opportunities to touch base because that piece is important. And I think everybody's missing it. Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, specifically on the the forecast, the way you are forecasting, have that changed? And actually, it'll be good to know before that. Um, what is your current uh, forecasting process, just to, so the audience can understand? Yeah, so our forecasting process, so I, I've been at Benchling about 18 months. And so I would say our forecasting process has been changing, you know, the whole time since we're, we're a new growing company and we're figuring, mm. finding our footing in that area. So our process today is we, we do a bottoms up roll up, which we're using Salesforce forecasting tools to do that. And it used to be managers, but now we've rolled it down to account executives where everybody can look at their pipeline and tell us, you know, what's your, what are you committing? What's your best case? And then we also look at what's just in the straight CRM as far as what are the closed dates? What are the probabilities? And we take that weighted forecast. So we have those two methods together that, that I consider bottoms up. On the side, I run, I guess you can call it more of a top down. We do look at, so eventually, you know, like most SaaS organizations, right? We have three like major buckets or sources of revenue, whether that's our new customer acquisition, our um, customers who are coming up for renewal terms, and then we have our opportunistic cross-sell or change order opportunities. So depending on those three buckets, and then when I break that down by our different sales groups, they all have very different velocity and metrics, right? So win rates, deal sizes, and sales cycles vary across them. So we measure them. Um, we take a stamp of them monthly. 
And then I use that data to say, okay, this is what we've booked in a period. And then for the remaining time period and whatever fiscal period we're in, I take the velocity metrics and the deals we have in the number of opportunities and pipeline, and I start to extrapolate, okay, this is where I think revenue is going to land when I roll all of that together. And so it basically gives us three um, three numbers we can triangulate. There's like AE bottoms up, there's straight Salesforce weighted forecast, and then we have the model on the side that kind of strips out any, you know, you always have your sandbaggers or your happy ears on sales, right? So the model is meant to normalize for any of that behavior. Awesome. And so then if your job to take all three of those and then present that to leadership as the final forecast. Correct. Correct. Makes sense. And has, well, actually, you mentioned at the start of that explanation is that the forecasting process has been evolving consistently since you joined anyway. So there haven't been any specific changes over the past six months. Not for COVID. I think the model we the model that I walked through that we implemented, I'd say Q2 of this year. So that's fairly new and something we've been refining. Because I think the feedback has always been, you know, people are always skeptical, right? Of like what's in the Salesforce pipeline, things move around. So the creation of that model was really to give us a backbone or something to feel like this is looking at historical performance and how that's changing on a monthly basis. So we can feel like it's less, um, you know, less weighted by what individual AEs or sales managers might think. Makes total sense. Awesome. And then moving on to KPI, the metrics, which over the, the whole career, which is the sales metric that you think you've got the most value from? I really think it's that sales velocity metric where you're taking, you know, I'm multiplying my opportunities in pipes by my win rate, by my deal size, and I'm dividing it by sales cycle. You know, mm. it's, I, some people meet that with skepticism, but what I like about it is that I think it gives you a, an ability to diagnose issues, whether you're looking at you know, an aggregated customer segment to see those dynamics, but even by rep, right? So we've had reps who, you know, one example I could think of in um, a previous organization, not Benchling, was you know, someone who she was hitting her quota you know, every quarter, and then she finally had a dip where she just like, didn't have any pipeline and was going to miss wildly, and everybody was like, what is going on? And I felt like sales velocity gave us the ability to say, okay, well, let's go look at her numbers compared to everyone else and see what's happening. And it turned out you know, her sales cycle was like drastically longer than everybody else's. So while her deal sizes tend to be huge and her win rate is high, you know, if she's taking forever to close, that could impact one of her quarters if something slips. So I've always liked that metric for being able to get super specific and prescriptive about what somebody can do um, that's actionable to improve. Got it. So you, that's the go-to metric. It's not just one of the vanity ones. It's a metric that you can look at and that will tell you or that will help you give an actionable improvement to a rep or group of reps about how they can actually improve their, their pipe or improve or build the size of their pipeline. For sure. And if it doesn't give me the answer, it usually leads me down a path where we can get there through another analysis, maybe. Amazing. Awesome. And now we're wrapping up with the final two questions. Who within your career has, has been the most inspirational? 
So that one, so my earlier story about getting into sales ops and that director of revenue operations, uh, her name is Lori Macias, and we're, we're friends this day. So we still laugh about that moment when I went up to her desk and she was brand new and I told her I really wanted to be <laughs> in her group, but she was amazing. I really feel like, you know, there were two years that we worked together at Polybor as a private company. And then we still worked together for two years into the Yahoo acquisition. And I, those four years were probably like the highest concentration of learning for me, you know, from the extremely tactical. I remember sitting next to her. She taught me how to write a VLOOKUP in Excel to like just watching her, you know, build relationships and stakeholder influence, building out processes and really like changing an organization was something that I feel incredibly lucky to get to like sit next to her and like watch it in the front row. Um, so Lori, for sure, she's actually, you know, another source of inspiration is that she's the, uh, she's now the chief revenue officer at a company called Winolo. And mm. for me, I think it's interesting. You don't see a lot of CROs come up through operations necessarily. So watching her take that on has been, it, it's really cool to see. Amazing. Laura sounds like a, an absolute inspiration. And then the final question is, who within the world of sales ops that you do or don't know, would you like to take for lunch? Yeah. So um, there's actually a woman named Tori Moss. She leads revenue operations at Greenhouse. And we were introduced by um, a Benchling investor, actually. And we were introduced and she. I've just appreciated so much how she is... In- incredibly generous with her time and insights because, you know, in, in ops roles, especially at companies that are growing and they're smaller, it, it's easy to find yourself in a vacuum and people are looking at you for answers and, and you're just not going to have all of them all the time, right? Especially if the job is challenging and a good fit for you. So Tori is someone where I think she exemplifies, you know, she's, she's very willing to reach out across other companies and bring people together and, I think that's something that I would be happy to buy her lunch for. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Michaela, thank you so much for the uh, for the masterclass. Um, it sounds like Benchling is a super kind of well flexible sales force, and it seems like you guys internally are doing a really comprehensive job of of operating them, probably for lack of a better term. But um, Michaela, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for coming on. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sales of Demystified podcast. If you are listening on a podcast listening application, then please subscribe, rate, and review. And if you have any questions about the show, if you know a guest, or if you have any questions about sales operations, just hit me up at tomhunt at ebster.com. That's tomhunt at ebster.com.